from the creators who brought you RuPaul's Drag Race and Million Dollar Listing. This is World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Um, welcome, everybody, to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton, co-founder of World of Wonder, joined as ever by James St. James, editor of the Wow Report. Mm-hmm. Looking lovely. And Tom Campbell from the UK. Yay, Tom. Welcome. Freshly, freshly landed, full of jet lag. Excuse any mispronunciations and things this episode. But apparently apparently he's across the street from Windsor Castle where the Queen is holed up with COVID. If at any point you hear a raspy cough, it's Queen Elizabeth. Because that's how close I am to Windsor Castle right now where she's staying. (laughs) Close your windows because it's so infectious. If she just coughs out of the window, it will go right into you. And now there's the new variant, the Omicron BA, originating in London. What does that do? It's more infectious than Omicron, apparently. Okay. People are a little mask-free around here. I'm I'm a little nervous for me, but everyone pray. But but we're really kind of bearing the headline. Oh, well, I wasn't going to come out. I'm like... Self-hating. <laughs> I have COVID. I'm speaking to you with COVID. Yes. And you are isolating in in the desert. Springs, yes. Yeah. I mean, it does make me have a very croaky voice. So, well, I think it, you sound very sexy. I, I I'm in love with this. I'm crushing on the new Fenton. Thank you, James. It's about time you loved me after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> it, took, it took COVID. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And with that, I was like, (laughs) Uh, we're counting down the top 10 things that made us go wow this week. Uh, Let's jump into the countdown. Number 10, Tom. Number 10. This week marks the 50th, 5-0 anniversary of a little film called Lady sings blue. Has it been 50 years? She's got a bad. It is Dinah Ross is Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. I think the first time I saw it was on ABC Sunday Night Movie. Ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba. Um, I was drawn to it. I fell in love with Dinah Ross in the 70s. I didn't know about the Supremes. I was too young. I have since, of course, gone back and learned every Supreme song and legend and B-side and never release song. But, and it's, it's you know, every generation has their Britney or their Beyonce or their Billie Eilish because they, they sort of, you're at the right age when the artist is peaking and being, and Dinah Ross in the 70s. Oh my God, she's so beautiful. It was. It's um. It's also Black History Month, so Fathom Events, which teams with Turner Classic Movies, the only thing I watch on television with any regularity, mm-hmm. had uh, screenings of Lady Sings the, the Blues at theaters around the country. I think there still is one um, uh, on February twenty eighth, but I went on February twentieth, and um, the theater was a little empty. It was three p.m. I brought Brie from work, who's a huge Diana Ross fan. She's a youngster. She's in her 30s, so I feel very good. And I kept looking. I literally looked around the theater as it was happening to see, because I thought Diana Ross might come in. She just might just pop by. She lives near there. She might just sit in the back row for a while. Um, and I told Brie something that you guys probably remember, but the first time I knew Diana Ross was on Twitter is when she was like, hey, you guys, I lost my fanny pack at the Rosses in Culver City. And, and she found it through Twitter. So that's who Dinah Ross is now. But then she was spectacular as Billie Holiday. Do you have any 
I've, I've never, never seen, seen Lady Sings the Blues. I, Mahogany is my sort of 70s Diana Ross reference. Oh, uh, sure. Okay. Well, The Wiz is my 70s Diana Ross. But I remember watching uh, Lady Sings the Blues. And even though she doesn't physically embody Billie Holiday, she gets it. And she gets the voice and the tragedy and the trauma. And she's it's so it's such a revelation. And if it hadn't been for Dan Liza Minnelli and Cabaret that year, Diana would have taken it all the way. Uh, the other interesting uh, fact is that it was the first time in history that two black women were nominated for uh, Liza Minnelli isn't black. No, Cicely Tyson oh, and yeah. Diana Ross. For and then Sounder, it happened again right? last year with Viola Davis. And I'm going to go blank because I'm jet lagged. Um, but all I will say is. Um, it's not, it's, you know, it's full of, of, of historical Pathos. inaccuracies. It's, it's blended together, but it's like the most beautiful oil painting in the world because it, it's her performance, you know, vibing on, on Billie Holiday. It, it, it's very melodramatically, but plays up the racism of the time that she lives through in really effective ways, including where she goes off the bus. She's with a white band and she goes off the bus to take a pee and she, walks upon you know comes upon a lynching and a family you know taking the body off the tree and then it cuts to her freaking out and then and then lady sings the i mean uh strange fruit plays which billy holiday was very famous yeah, for singing cool. and and whatever just, the, the 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 pathos of the heroin addiction is done so beautifully and it was yeah. one of the first times i think i'd ever seen drug addiction on the screen yeah. when i was a child it's funny you talk about how you were you were aware of diana ross before you knew about the supremes my first album was a paul mccartney and wings album and i had no idea about the beatles i just liked i thought paul mccartney and the wings and when wings were the best band ever and then i heard about the beatles and i was like i thought that was his like starter band before and <laughs> it, it had no interest in them whatsoever oh my gosh james i love that but I, paul mccartney did have a moment with wings you know with it was um, band on the run yeah and um oh my gosh what and live and let die oh Yes. But for me, with, with Diana Ross, and my sister was a huge uh, Wings fan, too, to be able to find a whole catalog of incredible mm -hmm. work that exists before you were fans of them is such a bonus. It got me through my college years because I didn't go to yeah. class, Lord knows. Um, <laughs> Fenton, at some point, I saw it in a theater, and I have to say why I am screen agnostic. I realized for me, being in a theater in the dark, I do totally surrender my attention in a way I don't at home. Of and, course, uh, there's a magic to it that is unequaled. Yeah. It's just that, you know, we have to be screen agnostic because we can't all go to the theater now, exactly. right? So um, where can we see Lady Sings the Blues? It's one more Fathom event. Look it up, Fathom Events. Um, it's going to be in the theaters. And if not, you can obviously, you can rent it. And it is a spectacular. Richard Pryor, Billy D. Williams. It is, it is. Oh, Billy D. Williams in 1970. Four was it? Oh my God, so handsome! I think one day we have to do a whole 1970s episode because it was an aesthetic in the 70s that I don't think has really been unpacked. You, you go, anymore. you go from Star Wars to Mean Streets, and I mean, there's just it's everything. It's That's, just you know, it's everything. And everybody said, I remember in the 70s, everybody said 70s sucks, 70s so awful. It's it, but to me, it's the most rich, varied, and slightly bonkers period. Well, you've got Three's Company and Jiggle TV. I mean, like, everything about media in the 70s is just Platform insane. boots, flared trousers. Yes. And mahogany. 
and things. Anyway, okay, let's go on. Uh, number nine, James. Number nine. I watched the nine-part series Inventing Anna on Netflix. And if you guys have not watched this, it's absolutely bonkers. You talk about bonkers entertainment. It is insane. Anna, of course, uh, was the fake German heiress who captivated New York society while she was bilking them out of millions of dollars. And Julia Garner from Ozark plays her. And she talks in this accent like you've never had before. Nobody has ever spoken like this in the history of the world. You're such a basic bitch. Like your clothes. Look at your hair. You're just awful. And she plays her as this narcissistic monster who there's no redeeming qualities, and you do not understand why every single person just becomes obsessed with her. And it's mind-blowing, but it, it really happened. And um, uh, let me see. Anna Klumsky is the reporter, the New York Magazine reporter, who becomes obsessed with her and tells the story, and it becomes the biggest story in New York Magazine's history. And she, Anna Klumsky, who is so great on Veep, is a nightmare here. And she is ultimately the big villain in the story. I don't know how they, but she is so unlikable and so relentlessly nasty and self-absorbed herself that she makes Anna look like, <laughs> you know, a mother Teresa. So she's the reporter. She's the reporter. Anna Klumsky is. Yes. There's also, um, Laverne Cox is in it. Stewie from succession is the lawyer and he's so hot. He's really wonderful. Um, and a guy named James Kusadi Mayer, who is the hot fashion homo. And he's a real fine, but, um, you know, that she built money lenders and hotels and banks and, society people out of all this money like you don't really feel bad for these people because they're all horrible they're everyone every single person that she built is horrible she, she's sort of like a robin hood thing which is why i guess everyone was so obsessed with the story but i kept finding myself like being furious with these people who were like ride or die and they kept making excuses for her even as they were given every red flag and they knew what was going on and they kept supporting this narcissistic monster. And then I had a light bulb moment. It was like, it's because I supported a narcissistic monster despite every red flag. And I'm the idiot that is not learning any lessons from this. And I, it was like this whole, like, Oh my God, I'm like a terrible, I'm like, I hate these people. I hate myself. And Anna never even killed anyone. And so like, I'm even worse than these idiots. You're referring so, to your friendship with Michael Ehrlich. Yes, yes I'm referring monster. to another monster, a party monster who I, uh, and we all were, um, you know. But Michael know. was, okay. So Michael was charming and charismatic. And you're saying that Anna was not. No, she isn't there. She's, she's not pretty. She's not nice. She doesn't coerce you with, you know, she does buy you dinner, you know, on her fake credit card and stuff. But she's ultimately just like, it, it's hard to spend time with this character. And especially because each episode is like an hour and a half and there are <laughs> nine of them. And by the time you were like 15 hours in, you were like, make it stop, please, mommy. <laughs> Did it need I think to be it's fascinating. Hours? 
I'm sorry. I think it's fascinating that most people would watch the series to go to a total escapist place and see a world they'd never be let into. And James sees it and learns a valuable life lesson. Like it's an <laughs> after <afternoon> special. <laughs> well, the fashion is pretty, they spent a lot of money on the clothes and she, she does. Some of them are fabulous. I've read that the fashion's incredible. And I've read that she got paid like $320,000. Oh, oh, well, that's the whole thing. That's, that's one of the big problems of it is that not only did Netflix pay the reporter to get the story. So they already have, the story but then they paid Anna Sorokin $320,000 but when they already had the story but because of the son of Sam laws Anna couldn't use it for herself so she used it to pay off all her debts so not only did Netflix pay off the debts of this woman but they made her more famous in the process so she walks out of prison uh, with no debts and you know all these very very robin hood very robin yeah yeah so she actually ends up you know like not having to pay restitution to anybody because of netflix that's the amoral cult of the algorithm for you yeah (laughs) let's go on to number eight number eight okay so here's the headline francis ford coppola legendary film director right one from the heart um fill in the blanks he is going to spend $120 million of his own money on making his next film, which is going to be called Megalopolis and is something that it's a lifelong passion of his. It's, it's a sci-fi film. I believe it's about utopia. I really don't know very much about it. He's just wanted to make it for years and years and years. And I guess Hollywood has always said, no, 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 no. And now he's, God bless him, he, in defiance of all sanity, of all algorithmic reasoning, he is going to spend, and says, I don't care, I'm going to spend $120 million to make this film. And you know, I posted a thing on Facebook saying, oh, I can't wait to see how this turns out, which I think read sarcastically, but actually I meant it sincerely. I really can't wait to see how this turns out because I think in the world we live in, too many things are done by committee and that the single vision of a single person is sadly absent from the cultural landscape these days. Forget you know, about committees. Made- Talk about the algorithm. We've always like had committees. Now it's like a whole uh, computer. But the, the, the downside of that is that you have things, and we've talked about like how nobody says no to Ryan Murphy and nobody edits him or says that, you know, like when you have somebody who it's their vision and they do what they want and da da da, you get like, um, what was the island of Dr. Moreau? Remember that was a big debacle because nobody was able to say no to Marlon Brando and nobody was able to say no to the director. When you have somebody who nobody can say no to or stand up to, then you often get these mishmashed monsters of like James, you know, no, no, James, uh, no. That's why I love you, no. James, because uh, you always say no to me. <laughs> but I do, I think it's funny, Fenton, that Francis Ford Coppola of the Godfather fame, like the only movie you could remember was like one from Places the heart. Places from the heart. Places from the well, heart. Well, it's COVID brain. You know, that's my excuse. <laughs> COVID brain, is that what it is? Yeah, he also made Apocalypse Now, which I I must confess, I didn't really like. Um, But I did love one from the heart. I I just remember just Vegas never looked so beautiful. Yeah, one from the heart. He did do The Godfather, didn't he? Wasn't that Mm -hmm. Coppola? 
Yeah, okay, okay. One, two, three, yep. He did lots of amazing films, none of which I seem capable of thinking of right now. And and then he uh, he lost, didn't he lose his fortune on the Cotton Club, I believe, right? Oh, right. Um, well, that was it, another debacle where he had too much power. Yes, he's king of the debacles. He would, yeah. all his films always went over budget, but he was also a technological pioneer. He built Zoetrope Studios, I think I'm right in saying, Zoetrope? Is yeah. That what I'm like? I could just be babbling at this point. You can cut this all out. But he built these amazing studios, lost his entire fortune, and then made a whole nother fortune in wine with, with vineyards in, in California or wherever it is, up, up the coast. Napa. Thank you. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. Napa. And I'm he, enjoying this fever dream uh, <laughs> of, of Fenton's today. I, I, I believe him. He's never been more lucid. <laughs> exactly. Sophia, his daughter, of course, made that brilliant movie, Lost in Translation, and then that very weird mannered movie, Versailles. I mean, I, I just think that Marie Antoinette, but it was also Virgin Suicides is is just oh, a, right. talk right. about your fever dreams. That's that's gorgeous. Right, right. But I just I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see that film. And then, you know, I, I know it's been in the works for a while. Madonna's film written by her about her starring her and her daughter. I can't wait to see that too. Although that might be a slightly different experience, but you know. Well, no, but, but I think nobody will say no, Madonna and nobody in Diablo Cody learned that the hard way, didn't she? Oh yeah. Apparently she was what well, I don't know. I don't want to misspeak because I know Madonna's listening, but she, she was <laughs> removed from the project or something, but Madonna's probably writing it herself, but I, I really can't wait to see it. And I think there is something to be said for why does a movie have to be good? I think movies can engage us even if they're they're sort of train wrecks. And in fact, I think we're seeing that the bomb can be kind of a special kind of genius. Like, yeah. you know, remember we all used to talk about Ishtar and Bank Ishtar is a great movie. I loved. I had more fun at Ishtar. <laughs> I remember Musto's review was, it was one line and it said, Ishtar spelled backwards is rat shit. <laughs> that is and it isn't, but he but said. <laughs> <Right. laughs> oh, if we're going to do one word reviews, uh, Musto's one, I think, or was it Steven Salem's for, for Yentl was uh, mental, M-E-N-T-L. <laughs> anyway, let's go to a break before I just ramble. <laughs> well, I have a question. What is so special about the last eight days of this month, February 2022? We'll be right back after the break with the answer. You're listening to The Wow Report on Radio Andy. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Welcome back to The Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with Tom and James and Blake. Yes, and I had a question. What is so special about these last eight days of February 2022? Well, I know. I believe it's a, a string of palindromic dates. Yes. That's right. It's palindrome week plus a day. Um, All right, let's go on with our countdown of the top 10 things this week that made us go, wow, number seven. Number seven. Have you heard of pickleball before last week? No. You know, I, I think you know that I have a pickle phobia and that I've never tried a pickle in my life. And just the word pickle makes my skin crawl. So I think you're doing right. this to torture me right yeah. now. 
I'm gonna just as a trigger warning, I'm gonna use the word pickle a great deal, James, in this in this in this regard. Can but, I just say speak to that, Tom? I actually gave James St. James a pickle Christmas tree ornament, thinking it was the funniest thing to do. It's <laughs> he hasn't uh, spoken to me. James I just didn't... walked off camera, he's walked <laughs> no, off mic. No, I and have it right here. pickle ornament. I have my pickle ornament in my kitchen to always remind me of the time you tortured me with the pickle ornament. Well, pickleball has nothing to do with pickles. <laughs> it is, but it is the fastest growing sport on the face of the earth. And basically it has been embraced since its, its origin in 1965 by lots of, let's pay attention you guys, senior citizens because it's sort of a combination of badminton and table tennis and ping pong and it's a wiffle ball and a and a paddle and a loaf and a low uh net and a very confined area so that you it supposedly you know it takes years to learn how to play tennis speaking of the 70s did you play i played tennis in the 70s because everybody was and i wasn't very good um but I'm, i'm kind of excited to start some pickleball because it's it's they're 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 merchandising lots of pickleball outfits at Dick's, you know, Sporting's Goods and all that kind of stuff. And it all began in Bainbridge Island, off of the uh, Washington State and Seattle. And it, they thought it was named after this waspy couples. They were kind of bored, and they made it their shed when their kids came home and were bored. Very very, you know. And they said so the rumor was that it was named after their dog Pickles, but the lady says, "No, no, no. We've got we, Pickles was named after the game that she thought it was. This is such a waspy term. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but in crew, you know, when you do crew, that they have the leftover people from every boat. They put them together, and that's called the pickle boat. <laughs> I love that." It's very waspy. It's very Jane St. James. <laughs> we had a tennis court in our backyard when I was growing up. See? And, and we had to play. I had to, they had a um, uh, tennis instructor who had come and I was just terrible. And I always remember this. Ah, this doesn't even matter. But I would always, it would go over the fence and into the river. And he'd say, another one for the fishies, James, because he was Scottish. <laughs> and he'd always scream, another one for the fishies. And that, like, it, I, in my mind, that is something that, well, there's, there's, a, there's an article in the New York Times. There's many articles. The New York Times has broken the story that it's happening. There's so many pictures of like senior citizens with like gobs of white, you know, face cream to not get sunburnt playing pickleball. And and their celebrity endorsement is Matthew Perry from Friends. And I love Matthew Perry, but he, you know, and I, I'm one to talk, but Matthew Perry may not be the fittest of the Friends. <laughs> and yet he's obsessed with pickleball. Pickleball is the new shuffleboard, is what you're saying. Yeah, but but it's it's a sexier, and I, I feel like we're, mm-hmm. we're we're close to having a pickleball Olympic thing. It's 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 showing up. They were like it's getting airtime, like on ESPN three, the pickleball network. It just pickleball uh, makes you feel good to talk about. It makes me. Mm-hmm. I had no idea you didn't like pickles, James, or I would have I would have thought of something else. No, it's fine. <laughs> they had a pickleball tournament on the latest season of Vanderpump Rules as well. So. So it's they not just for old people anymore. <laughs> the beautiful people are picking it up. You can be you young and lazy. lazy. Pickleball. I always imagined you in Fort Lauderdale growing up playing polo. <laughs> no, no, it was it was all um, 
No, I, mean, I don't play football. No, it was it was tennis, and it was just trauma, trauma, trauma. <laughs> what about croquet? No croquet. We played. Yeah, we had croquet. We my mom would play croquet a lot. Mm. All right, because you can smoke and play croquet. <laughs> the New York Times are going to buy the rights to pickleball. <clears throat> yes, perhaps put it behind a paywall. Mm-hmm, exactly. Pave paradise and put it behind a paywall. Um, <laughs> number six. Number six. I watched the new uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie on Netflix. And it is, um, it's another requel. It is not a sequel or a, or a reboot. It's a little bit of both. And this time it's 50 years after the first one. And a group of social media influencers buys a small ghost town in Texas with the idea of turning it into a social media utopia and invites down hundreds of other social media influencers. And they're all going to live in the town and it's going to be like an artist commune and everybody's going to just Instagram each other all day. (laughs) And unbeknownst to them, Leatherface has been living in the abandoned uh, orphanage this whole time. And he, even though he's 76 years old now. I was going to say, how old is he? He's he's getting up there. But he picks up his trusty chainsaws and starts whacking down the Instagram hose one at a time. And it Leatherface might be a candidate for pickleball. Well, maybe. He is, but he finds he gets another face and he puts on his new face and he's running around and everything. And it's completely ridiculous. And there are a thousand plot holes and none of it makes any sense. But there's this one scene that seems very real to me. And it's there's a party bus. And everybody is on the party bus drinking and dancing and the the music is going and there's like everybody is squeezed in this little bus and Leatherface gets on with his chainsaw and immediately it's like a record scratch and everybody stops and turns and in unison turns on their Instagram live feed. They start live streaming it. And you see the comments scrolling as he's like chopping up everybody in the in the bus, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, so fake!" And "Oh my god, I want to party with him!" And it's like it's just like one after the other, after the other, after the other of everyone like, "Where is this? I want to go!" Like, and you just feel like it if a, if a serial killer is coming at you, like your first instinct now is to start live streaming it, you know? So. <laughs> It's your description makes it sound really good because all the reviews I've read have been absolutely terrible. It's just it's an awful, awful movie, and every single person who dies is just so awful and unlikable that you act, you know, you're cheering Leatherface as he's doing it. Um, but it, I, it was a wonderful way to spend a Sunday morning. Ah! So I, <laughs> I love the way you say Sunday morning, so you can't be caught out at work. no i did did watch it over the weekend i promise i watched both of these over the weekend but um james what's today quick what's today never mind he has no idea what day it is he's making it up but um i was there was an interesting thread today on um twitter talking about the original um uh texas chainsaw massacre and how the idea behind the fact that what's so scary about it is that America is so huge 
that there's pockets of evil everywhere and you just have to lift up a rock and you're going to find a nest of spiders and like any house in anywhere can house evil. And if you just stumble across the wrong house at the wrong time, you're, you're, you know, killer fodder. That, that's a real thing, right? Rather than yeah, that, well, that's that's real. I mean, that that is, a, you know, I mean, America has a lot of sick and twisted, you know, like in, in little towns in Texas, you go for miles and you'll just see a house in the middle of nowhere and you think, what the fuck goes on in there? And it could be a family of cannibals. We don't know. I mean, like, but wasn't uh, these some guys watching like horror movies on a Sunday morning? But more, I mean, but but the fact is, is we, you know, you you see these weird houses in the middle of nowhere, and you just think like, there, but for the grace of God, like I could stumble in there and never stumble out, you know. But what the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was based on a true story, was it not? What's based on the Ed Gein, who, which is what Psycho was based on, which is what uh, I mean. There have been a bunch of movies based on him. He was basically more of a grave robber than a serial killer, and he, but he did have human lampshades and and you know, made what out of skin, you? and he wore a skin mask and things oh. like that. I guess. Wait, thing is doing something weird. Hold on. Number five. Number five. Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Get it? Number five. Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Contact has begun. Now, this is a, I don't know if I should say documentary, but it's notionally a documentary about ongoing contact with aliens. And I started to, I I don't know how I even stumbled on this. It, you know, and why, when you're looking for something to watch, do you watch the thing that you know you don't want to watch and that you're saying to yourself, I would never watch this, but when I could be watching The Gilded Age, but I choose to watch Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, Contact Has Begun. And it, it starts off very much as you'd expect. And, and, you know, aliens are here and lots of video of alien encounters. But then it does actually get really interesting because this guy, Stephen Greer, who I think is probably crazy, um, he says he is leading a sort of psychic operation to be in contact with the aliens. Because he's saying, look, they're here. We've heard about UFOs for years. The government's denied them. Now they're beginning to say they're here. Um, But he's saying, let's just skip all that and let's make contact with the aliens by getting together and getting in circles and doing psychic things. Because he, he then explains that... The universe is so big, you know, hundreds of billions of light years, that actual space travel, the way we conceive of it, isn't really possible. And the only way to do it is at the speed of thought. And so he makes this kind of quite alluring connection between ESP and mental thought, the idea that actually that's the way to contact the aliens. So it looks a little weird. He's leading all these seminars, groups of people doing these sort of consciousness meditation things and claiming to make contact with aliens. I haven't got to the end of the whole thing. I will finish it. Um, Jeremy Piven is narrating it, which gave me pause, you know, as I <laughs> actor with troubled reputation. So it's probably like sort of authenticating the fact that I am watching a crazy documentary. Mm-hmm. But I, I just thought it was interesting. And then he said, look, he said, 
you know, Hollywood has for years basically the the conspiracy, as Darren would say, the conspiracy here is that the aliens are out there and that they're a hostile force. And he says, no, they're not. You know, if they were hostile, they would have eliminated us with that technology that is billions of years ahead of us eons ago. And even though we, so that we're constructing this paranoid fantasy that the aliens are hostile. And, you know, he quotes Trump and the Space Force and and puts Hollywood in the, in the crosshairs of all the Hollywood films with aliens. I mean, most of them. Well, Stephen Hawking famously said that, you know, he had a whole theory about how they are, they are we're either going to be pets or slaves. And mm. there's no, we aren't going to be friends because there's no, you know, they're so advanced from us that there's no, you know, right. equal. Right. And, they, and the, the counter to that is, well, if that is the case, they would have done away with us and we would have already been enslaved, what have you. So, and why were they hanging. helping build the pyramids? And why were they helping, you know, all those other things? Right. Why, you know, yes, they're obviously- they're hanging around and they're hoping that our sort of inherent, um, what's the word, deep-rooted hostility will be, won't prove fatal to ourselves or, you know, to them. And that, Or maybe that's... they're waiting for us to get to a utopian point where there they can come. Yeah. And there was um, an interesting moment. There was, I don't know if this is true, but they said that if you get a windowless room, and you put a plant in one corner of the room and you add a light that is on a random generator shining all around randomly, the light will start shining on the plant in the corner more than anywhere else. And so the idea being that the, the plant has the ability to think and that the plant's thoughts are able to manifest a change in the way the light behaves. I know, I know. Or is it that light gravitate towards the living? Or, well, there you go. But the, but the point is being that- you know, The thing of, is being random and that the random always ends up finding a pattern. Right. And the unconnected the things do actually end up showing some kind of connection yeah i mean there there is no mm-hmm. chaos because everything has to end up eventually into a pattern i do think though that there is something to that where or to the the other point that you know like when shamans and uh shamans and and you know wise men and everybody would take their magic mushrooms and stuff to see god that they were just opening up their minds and that is when they would make contact with aliens or gods or whatever mm-hmm. it was. You know I mean? Like, like I yeah. think that your mind is probably powerful enough to, um, you know, meet the aliens. Let's do yeah. it. For those who just listening to the radio, I've been nodding thoughtfully a lot during the segment. Mm. <laughs> yes. Tom is probably calling some hotline to have us both taken away <laughs> in straight jackets. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I am going to finish this documentary, and, and especially the idea. He says one of the ideas is that the universe is just a thought. And I said, oh my god, that's so. And then I went to sleep. So um, <clears throat> let's take a break. I think it's a good time for a break. Excellent, uh, <laughs> Blake. Uh, uh, I've got a question. I think you guys are going to guess it, but I thought it was super interesting anyway. This skier from Finland was doing the 50-meter cross-country ski, um, and something on his body froze. Mm. 
What was that? Gosh, thank you, Blake. Yeah. Uh, finally, a question I can answer. You're listening to the Wow Report on Radio Andy. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with James and Tom. And Blake, and I know that during that break, you haven't tuned out because you want to know. <laughs> um, so a Finnish skier was doing the 50 meter cross-country skiing race and something on his body froze. What was it? His name is Remy Lindholm. He's 24. Well, if it was Remy, it was probably his butthole. <laughs> James, you know the answer. You're just uh, <laughs> his penis froze off. <laughs> it was. And he said he used a heat pack to help thaw it out, and it really hurt when it thawed out. Oh, he could have. I was gonna my, say. I hope he could have just used ending. my warm breath. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. We are counting down the top ten things that made us go wow, and we've reached number four. Number four. This is a, a long story. I'll try to make short, but I, you know how you follow. I follow a lot of people just to eavesdrop on their lives, and they let me. And there's a guy, David Mason, can't pronounce his last name, who owns Slick It Up, which is like high-end designer fetish wear. And I enjoy his posts, and I, I like him, and I judge him, and all those things. And through him, because I also see who people are, you know, I'm thirsty. I see who people are hanging with, and I befriend them. And if they're stupid enough to befriend me back, this is on Facebook, so it's mutual. There was a, There's this big, giant, like, Hercules-looking guy that's been modeling for him. So I follow him. He's a drag race fan. We don't talk, but I just get a sense that they seem like fun people, even though they're giant, masculine he-men. And the the Hercules guy put on Dave Mason's, whose last name I can't pronounce his page, this movie I was telling you about. And it was a movie called, it was a link to a full-length film on YouTube called When Betty Met May, When Betty Davis Met Uh Mae West. Well, this now, sounds right up our alley. Exactly. <laughs> the algorithm was working for me. So I click on it and it's it's based, it's it's sort of a, it's a reenactment documentary where um, uh, an actor, uh, you know, it, it, this is like five years old now, but he's a red vest and he has someone playing Bet, Bet, Betty Davis and someone playing Mae West. And they kind of look like them, you know, in that drag queen kind of way, but they're, they're women, you know. And he sort of he starts off by sort of talking by himself, the the maker of the film, and he says that I was uh, uh, you know I knew Betty Davis in the sixties, and and you know, and he sort of implies there's a bunch of gay people around Betty Davis, there's a bunch of gay guys around Mae West. They'd never met. They brought them together, and that night I was bartender, and they t- and they took a picture. And we see the Polaroid of the real Betty Davis and the real narrator, you know, from the sixty from sixty five. And he said, right before uh, May came into the house, I said to the, all the gays around, shouldn't I tape this like on a cassette tape recorder? And they said, that's a great idea. So the movie is people lip syncing to the dinner party. Actual Betty Davis and actual May West. And it's really rough. And people give it like sort of like mean reviews. You know, it's not, it's not like it's a huge release, but it's fascinating and the idea that somebody taking something that's such a prize such a gift and making something of it i guess such a, so okay that would be enough if the guy who made the film's name is west whedon and i'm thinking 
is he on Star Trek? Like, why do I know the name West Whedon? Have I slept with West Whedon? West Whedon? West, <gasps> West Whedon is my optometrist. What? <laughs> <laughs> What is happening? ever. <laughs> and when you go to see Wes Wheaton, who's on Santa Monica Boulevard, he's been many places, but he's like two downs from Circus of Books. Circus of Books, the haircutting place that's always been there. And then Wes Wheaton, it's very legitimate. He's so classy. He's such a good optometrist. He's, you know, a man <laughs> of a certain age, a little older than me, very well put together, very kind. And when you go sit in his office, you know, left, right, worse, better, better, there's pictures of Elizabeth. Uh, he has worked with everyone. And now I have this, so I already had an appreciation for him. And I tell him I do drag race and he's like, Oh yes. Mm-hmm. You know, but he is, he, he was. Have you gone of, to, have you, you have to go get glasses and talk to him about I'm it. I'm going to go back. I am, I am, uh, I adore him already. And now that I know that he made this film and that he, you know, he really has earned his stripes as, as a, a, a sort of like legendary gay. Lens, lens crafter for the stars. Yes. So just so I'm clear, your optometrist had a dinner party, recorded Betty Davis and, and, and Mae West. Mae West together, and then put a, made a film lip syncing to that audio. Yes. Yeah. He has an actor playing him. He has an actor playing, they're actors recreating the entire event that they use the tape recording as the soundtrack. So it's a lipstick. Where can we watch this film? It's on YouTube. It's called When Bet, B-E-T-T-E, When Betty Met May, M-A-E-Y. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's fucking fascinating. And what, shouldn't we all tape a dinner party and then make a movie about it 40 years later? Wasn't that what Warhol was trying to? I think Warhol would, would have that party, that show where it was all the parties and he would tape it. But, but anyway, but I, I, the bearing the lead here, first of all, how weird is it that Betty never met May in all their years I know. in Hollywood? And what was the, how what, how did they react to each other? I haven't seen the whole thing and I was going to watch it before I left, but it, but there's, it starts off with Betty saying they were supposed to meet at the Otto Preminger, like, you know, like festival, you know, like some kind of tribute to him. And Betty and, and May was like, was feeling well so she didn't want to give everybody her cold i mean it's very banal but fabulous conversation which i love banal conversation yeah and Betty's like nobody was there and then they cut to like a picture and it was a hall filled with like thousands of people but Betty's like nobody was there it was awful we couldn't wait to leave but she was like nobody big was there um so I- i'm gonna keep watching it but it's it's fascinating, and I once I found it was west Sweden, i just like did a cartwheel in my in my home that's crazy <clears throat> That's in crazy. Hollywood, I mean, you can't swing a cat in this town without <laughs> hitting somebody who was friends with Mae West or, you know, <laughs> Betty Davis. It's just crazy. <laughs> All right, we're going to post that on the route board because it sounds must watch. Number three, James. Number three. Uh, I watched a documentary on Hulu called Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time. And it is... Um, not only a biography of, you know, the iconic great author who wrote Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five and it's just a, you know, beloved. <gasps> God, he's, he's just so iconic. But it's also the story of the director, Robert Wide, who it's his, it took 40 years for him to, to make this movie. He filmed, starting in 1980, he filmed right up to the uh, Vonnegut's death in 2007 and then sat on it for 15 years. Like, what do I do with all this footage that he has? And so it's sort of his story about his friendship with Vonnegut and how they travel around together and become really good friends. But 
what's fascinating, well, Vonnegut himself is just a fascinating, fascinating man. I mean, it he goes through so many tragedies in his life. His sister dies in just this horrific way, and her husband, uh, she's on her deathbed, and her husband is coming to visit her, and his train goes off the tracks and goes into the river, and he drowns. And then when she, when they bring the newspaper to her about her husband, she dies 20 minutes later. I mean, and then he has to raise her five kids. Vonnegut has to raise her five. And like, his mother died of suicide, and the big defining event in his life of course was in world war ii when he was in an underground bunker in dresden as the bombs rained down and totally i mean dresden you know is one of the great tragedies of the human civilization where they just took out the city they just leveled the city and he talks about coming out of the bomb shelter and seeing just the destruction of like what the violence that man can do. And that's of course the basis of slaughterhouse five is the bombing of Dresden. And so, but you have him talking about all these things and for every tragedy that happens, he tells these wicked jokes, these evil, nasty jokes and cracks himself up and starts laughing until he's wheezing, weaving, wheezing and coughing and choking on the laughter. And they, after a while, it's like really disconcerting, you know, but he's like, what else are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, you got to laugh or you're going to die. Absolutely. And, he's just, and, he's, and he's like, and that's throughout the whole movie. He's just talking to students and he's talking at book clubs and this and that. And he's just, I mean, a wicked, wicked man. And his jokes are so inappropriate and so awful, but he's just, he's just fascinating. And if you, I mean, I slapstick his book slapstick changed who i fundamentally am as a person when i was 14 and i read it it it's it's his most loathed book but it just it changed how i thought of art it changed how i thought of humanity it changed how i thought of just everything and so i'm a huge huge fan and if you aren't a fan pick up a book pick up one of his cat's cradles one any one of them and start and then watch this documentary. I did a major high school term paper on Kurt Vonnegut novels. Like I, I, I should reread them because I'm sure there's one little, this is a tidbit. It's such a weird, but I don't even remember where it's from, but he was talking about how when you meet someone on a plane, you have a really good conversation. It means there was some science fiction word for it, that they come from the same place you do, like from before mm. time. And that when you die, you'll return to that place. But like you find like while well, you travel this earth, you find those people. And they said, that's why when some spouses die, their other spouse dies right away because they're going back to that place. I they're don't know. going back. They're rebooting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Breakfast of Champions, Cat's Cradle, Dead Eye Dick. I mean, so many of these books are just so iconic and He's just, it's, it's, we lost a real, he was a great living genius, a giant in our time, you know? We have his work. We have his work. I love that. I'm going to read, should I read Slapstick? I don't think I've read any of his books. So Slapstick, yes. If you read Slapstick, it, it's, and it's so about now, it's the world after a pandemic and there's, oh. it's, it's just fascinating and funny and creepy and crazy and just i swear and- to god fenton if you read slapstick and turn into james st james <laughs> i will never but, forgive either one of you you have to read the forward because there's a forward where he's talking about rolling around with his dogs and um how much he loves his dogs and then 
every single thing from the forward ends up happening in an allegory later on in the story. It's just it mind every time you see like a the phrase being used later on, and it is just fantastic. Oh wow! Okay, Vonnegut. Sounds like he would have liked that uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Number two. Number two. I watched uh, on Netflix Downfall, the case against Boeing. Um, really against profoundly. Boeing. Hmm? Against Boeing? Yeah, against Boeing. You may remember that in 2018. Oh, uh, wait, I heard Bowie as in David Bowie. No, no David Bowie in this. I'm very sorry. Carry on, carry on. Boeing, the airplane manufacturers. Yeah. yeah. You know, every time you get on a plane, James, the chances are it's on a Boeing plane. And that's why you want to watch this documentary. Or maybe you don't, because um, Boeing had a reputation for being the safest uh, airplane manufacturers in the world. And you know, they made the 747, they invented them, built the 747 and revolutionized air travel. And it was one of those crazy dreams. You know, it wasn't based on market research. It wasn't based on algorithms. It wasn't, they just did it. They were going to build this plane and they built it. And it was the most amazing thing. Unfortunately, after Boeing was taken over in the 80s by McDonnell Douglas, their reputation for safety changed. It was all about keeping the share price up. Wall Street, what have you. And that shift in the culture manifested itself with the uh, the Max jet. In 2018, they had in a row, pretty much in a row, two airplane crashes where the jet, the Max jet, the Super Max jet just plunged into the ground and obviously killed everybody on board. And I don't know if you read about this at the time, but everybody was like, why are these planes falling out of the sky? They were brand new planes. And so this documentary tells the story of what happened. Basically, Airbus were competing with them very successfully, and they brought out a fabulous jet called the Airbus Neo, and Boeing was caught on the back foot. They didn't have anything. So they went back to their, I think it's a 737, an old trusty model, and said, well, let's soup it up. Let's make it more environmentally friendly, cheaper fuel, And they came up with the Max jet. And the whole idea was, it's a new jet, but it's an old jet. And because it's an old jet, you wouldn't need to go through all sorts of regulatory approval. You wouldn't need to do any pilot training, which is very expensive because the pilots have to go and go into simulators and they can't fly the planes. So they push through this Max version of the 737 and say you can fly it just like you've flown a 737. You can just get on and fly this plane. No, unfortunately not, because the new green economic engines had to be mounted in a different way, which changed the whole weight of the plane, which they fixed. They fixed that by introducing something called the MCAS. And the MCAS was a piece of software that would detect if your plane wasn't flying right and force the nose down. Yes, yes. I've been here. I remember this story. Yes. Only problem is this would require pilot training. Yes. So they, rather than do pilot it. training, they didn't tell the pilots that yes. this system was in place. And so no one knew flying the plane that an override would suddenly jump in, take control of the plane, and plunge it into the ground. 
<laughs> and this happened not once. This happened twice. And Boeing at first said, because it happened in foreign countries like uh, Ethiopia and um, Indonesia, there was all this sort of assumption that these foreign people don't know how to fly their planes. And they kept on saying the plane was safe. The plane was safe. Of course. And it wasn't. They had 10 seconds from detecting this problem. They had 10 seconds to fix it. Fix something that they had never been told about. Had no idea existed. And the second crash, they actually did know about it. They'd been told about it. And they did know. And they did what they were supposed to do. And it didn't work. well, it seems like, you know, it's, it's it's sort of a miracle that it only happened twice. It seems like it could have just happened hundreds of times simultaneously, you know. Yes. I mean, terrifying. It could terrifying. Have, they knew, Boeing knew it could have happened with 15 planes over 35 years. But they they had a document saying that. And they were like, okay. Yeah. Right. Risk um, management. It is the most horrible story. And I, I wish I could say there was a sort of satisfying ending to the film in the sense that Boeing got their just desserts, but actually they no. didn't. They no. had to pay $2.5 billion to avoid criminal prosecution. Well, that's a drop in the bucket. That doesn't hurt anyone. But too nothing big to fail. To too big to fail. They paid nothing to the families. They never And then they probably all gave the themselves families. bonuses at Christmas. They never apologized to the families. Ugh. The CEO left a Boeing with a $60 million bonus. They never apologized to the families. Uh, It just left me with a really bad taste in my mouth. It's it's time to rise up and just eat the rich, man. Just uh, down with everybody. (laughs) So that is Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, a really depressing documentary on Netflix. Let's take a break. Right after the break on The Wow Report, we'll reveal the number one thing this week that made us go, wow. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with Tom and James. And we're very excited to welcome Blake this week to reveal the number one thing that made us go wow. Number one. I want to talk about my favorite. Well, it's probably one of my top five favorite episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race of all time. (laughs) This past Friday. The queens had an acting challenge, and they didn't really know what they were doing. They were filming a soap opera for the Daytona Winds. And then when it was time for Rue to reveal the their finished product, it was all one big fart joke, and it was hilarious. Um, they, they, they put they all did the straight acting challenge and then rue and, and tom and everybody inserted fart as, sounds as much as i would love to take credit for that because i think it is a genius idea it was rue he had sent it to me like in the middle like well we were not in production like months earlier and he's i'm like you know we're working on the the, the, the creative which rue is very involved in he goes whatever happened to that thing i sent you i'm like what thing i literally had seen it and forgot about it, it goes daytona wins and so we looked at it, and it's the idea that it was, you know, drag racing families in Daytona who were, you know, at war with each other. And um, and it was all dynasty done. It was, like, very rich. And we wrote a script, the the writers, and you know, who are amazing and great, do a great job. And we brought it to Ruben, and we was like, it's not really what it needs to be. And we sort of sat there and just wrote, and Ruben was like, you know, mama, mama. I can't believe my ears, you know, but, but the, 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 Michael's wedding is off. I can't marry him, mama. 
And, you know, I'm sick to my stomach. And so we just did all this like crazy cliche stuff. And we threw in a couple extra kind of like, I can't believe my ears, um, lots and lots of poses. And then in post the night before the Queens had no idea, they put in fart noises after everybody's line. <laughs> so stupid. Oh my God. I watched it unfold on Twitter. I wasn't watching, but I watched the thing. Uh, and, and, you know, people love to pick on drag race anyway, and we're used to it. But like <laughs> scatological humor really cuts both ways. If you'll pardon me. <laughs> um, people were like, oh my God, you ruined it. I can't stand it. But it was so relentless and it went on for so long. <laughs> yeah. that it was one of those jokes that went from being funny to being not funny to being so not funny that it was funny again. Yes. And then it became, it was like meta. It was just, it just kept going. All these different levels of fart It jokes. was its own requel, you know, right? <laughs> in the thing. But it jumped the shark or I guess it jumped the fart, right? <laughs> yeah, what jumped the, what do they call that when you, when you have a shark? Jump the shark? Is that what you yeah, said? Jump the shark, yeah. jump the fart. Yeah, I love it. Also, um, do you yeah. remember though that um, in the era, in the era before memes and viral things, the Robert Tilton fart tape, he was a preacher. He would be like, touch your television set right now. And he'd run around the studio and there was a tape that went round with him farting. And it was, so everything had just had fart sounds on it. Never fails, you know? <laughs> It was well, hilarious. It was, it was... I was barreled overlapping the entire acting challenge. So <laughs> kudos and watch uh, RuPaul's Drag Race season 14 airing now tonight on VH1. Well, it's been a banner week for, for Drag Race Productions because the Pangina Heels story, that Twitter, social media just, I mean, like literally you turn on Twitter and that's, Anyone is talking about Drag Race. Everyone and anyone is just Drag Race, Drag Race, Drag Race. Tonight's episode, music composed by David Steinberg, Wow uh, Liberty, and it is a girl group challenge. The year is 1964, and it's a battle between the Rupremes, the Shangri-Las, and the Runettes, and it's dedicated to, to, to Ronnie Spector. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, James. Thank you, Blake. Um, same time, same place next week. Until then, go out and do something that makes the world go wow.